X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's March 30th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today on your daily local news podcast, today's headlines, a story by Kate Kay on some surprising fundraising help and a related controversy, and an interview with former mayor and current candidate for city council, Sam Adams. These issues are so fraught and they're so difficult. You need all of those diverse views and a lot of expertise at the table, and then just the average person's radical common sense. First up, it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. It's Monday, March 30th. Oregonians can fill their own gas. It's true until at least April 11th. Rudy Owens, a fire marshal spokesman, said the intent is to prepare for a situation where the workforce may not be able to come in due to the prevalence of COVID-19, and to make sure there will still be plenty of places for essential workers to get gas. Senator Mark Hass, a candidate for Secretary of State, called it preposterous. Gas pump handles could be breeding grounds for virus, no attendance to clean surfaces. Hass pledged to do his best to make sure the temporary idea doesn't go far. Whatever your view, it's a reminder to those of us who have waited fruitlessly at a pump for 10 minutes, wondering why no attendant ever came, and then realizing we were in Camas, Washington. There's been a major disaster declaration for Oregon. On Sunday, President Donald Trump approved a major disaster declaration, making Oregon now the 18th state with this federal designation. What does it mean? A major disaster declaration is when a local government doesn't have enough resources for long-term recovery. The declaration authorizes expanded federal resources. Oregon has requested additional PPE, personal protective equipment, child care assistance, crisis counseling, disaster case management, disaster legal services, and unemployment assistance. The last time we had a federal disaster declaration, the spring storms last year. It almost feels quaint now. Meanwhile, experts from OHSU expect the state's numbers to peak in the first two weeks of April. The current number of cases in Oregon is 548, with Washington County continuing to have the most cases at 154, and the death toll is at 13. And now 11,426 Oregonians have been tested. Amidst all this, the federal stimulus bill has been signed, the $2 trillion stimulus package signed by the president on Friday afternoon. More than a billion dollars will be shared with Oregon in addition to cash payments, unemployment assistance, help for businesses. According to Senator Jeff Merkley, about 55% will go to state government. The rest will be distributed to counties and cities. A new homeless shelter is coming online. Today at the East Portland Community Center, the shelter will house 75 women from existing shelters to ensure social distancing. This center joins the Convention Center, Charles Jordan Community Center, and even the Jupiter Hotel as new temporary facilities. want to shout out again to the Jupiter who told OPB that they heard about the need while listening last Wednesday to X-Ray in the Morning. And thanks to Emily Gilliland, who produced and hosted that segment, and to all of you who make X-Ray possible. Each new shelter means a need to feed residents. Local nonprofit Stone Soup has convened local restaurants to help feed over 500 meals each day to these new shelters. Whether it's offering to cook a particular meal, provide a special dish, the opportunity is a lifeline to the residents as well as the many restaurant employees needing work. There are beautiful things happening every day. There are just two bottle recycling locations open in Portland. Willamette Week reporting, the emergency order in place includes removing the bottle and can recycling requirement for groceries. This leaves just two locations for recycling in Portland. One in North Portland is now being threatened by eviction. 
Turns out so many people are congregating, waiting to recycle to get their dime back for their cans. The landlord is calling it a public health hazard. The location has 20 days to ensure social distancing. If that location closes, that's one less opportunity to make money for those who are income insecure. Some arts updates. We've seen the Portland Opera, Oregon Symphony, and Whitebird temporarily close. Now the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is on the list. Ashland's famous Shakespeare Festival has canceled performances through Labor Day and will lay off 80% of their workers. The local regional arts and culture council, RAC, is estimating a loss to the arts community of over $56 million due to the pandemic. In response to the economic impact on arts organizations, the Oregon Cultural Trust has voted to create a $10 million emergency relief fund for arts and cultural organizations around the state. Meanwhile, music venues are offering home concerts and live streaming dance parties to keep us moving from Holocene to the Portland Baroque Orchestra. Online parties and concerts are emerging. If civic engagement is your bag, City Club is now live streaming events, including a Portland mayoral debate tonight at 6 p.m. You can catch that streaming at xray.fm. Here are some stories from local businesses. Have you had trouble finding flour? Noticed a lot of pictures of baking on social media? Those two things are linked. With so many people at home, folks are finding more time to bake. Bob's Red Mill says there's plenty of grain. Mills just need time to catch up with a new demand. Hang in there, Portland. Flour is coming. Need vinyl? Beacon Sound has launched the emergency record delivery service. Owner Andrew Neerman saw the need for good tunes, wanted to keep his customers safe. Shout out to Columbia Sportswear who's going to continue to pay for retail employees. CEO Tim Boyle and other execs have reduced their own compensation to make sure that 3,500 retail employees will continue to be paid, though stores are closed. Oregon has reported over 76,000 new unemployment claims, 15 times higher than a typical week, and we've shared some of the businesses who have temporarily closed, from Powell's to Pock Our reporter Kate Kay investigated how small business in the tech sector have clashed over raising resources. Stay tuned for that. And speaking of which, the Small Business Relief Fund starts today. As we discussed last week, Prosper Portland is opening up new grants and low-interest and no-interest loans to support Portland small businesses. More information at Prosper Portland. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. This is Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. A short-lived COVID-19 fundraising effort from two tech giants, Yelp and GoFundMe, caught a bunch of businesses off guard last week. A Portland entrepreneur was among the most vocal critics. Journalist Kate Kay fills us in on what some say is an example of the tech industry's move fast and break things mentality. There are lots of uncoordinated efforts coming from all directions intended to help small businesses weather the storm of the COVID-19 pandemic, but some have been less coordinated than others. In the case of a recent partnership between digital giants Yelp and GoFundMe, the companies forgot to coordinate at all with the businesses they wanted to help. Some say the short-lived project is indicative of a bigger problem, tech industry hubris. Here's what happened. So on March 24th, links to GoFundMe fundraisers were automatically added to tens of thousands of Yelp pages for places like beauty salons, ice cream joints, and restaurants. The thing is, the businesses had no choice. The donation links were added to their Yelp pages without their permission. 
Sure, some small businesses had already started their own online fundraisers in the hopes of protecting their companies and employees during the crisis. In Portland, Tom's Restaurant, the iconic diner on Southeast Division Street, started its GoFundMe on March 15th and has taken in about $600 so far. Nostrana on Southeast Morrison also launched a GoFundMe before the automatic Yelp fundraisers went up. The Italian eatery has raised more than 3000 bucks. So here was Yelp and GoFundMe wanting every small business to have the same experience. Owners of a food truck in Fresno, California called Bravo Bites were appreciative. They wrote on Twitter, Thank you, Yelp and GoFundMe, for setting up relief pages for small businesses like ours. But not everybody saw the gesture as helpful, and some independent business people balked. Just two days after the automatic fundraisers were launched, complaints from businesses reached a social media crescendo. Portland entrepreneur Andy McMillan led the outcries. I'm very angry about this. Amid the pandemic, McMillan has been gearing up to launch Sucker Punch, an alcohol-free bar here. He plans to serve zero-proof concoctions made with ingredients like turmeric drinking vinegar and roasted corn tea. When he saw the fundraiser on his Yelp page, he wasn't happy. He asked on Twitter, uh, what the F? He employed the full F word, marveling at the fact that the fundraiser was added without notification or his permission. He spoke with a Yelp salesperson who tried to convince him this was a good thing. McMillan posted an audio recording online to explain how everything went down. Down. I tried to tell this person that it was not Yelp's responsibility to make decisions for my business, and this is not okay. This should not have been opt-out. It should have been opt-in. In a statement sent to X-Ray, Yelp said, quote, It has come to our attention that some businesses did not receive a notification with opt-out instructions, and some would have preferred to actively opt into the program, unquote. Yelp shut down the automatic rollout of the fundraisers on Thursday, two days after the effort launched. Still, some of those automated GoFundMe COVID-19 small business relief fundraisers still linger on the GoFundMe website. Many have raised zero funds. GoFundMe did not respond to a request to comment for the story. Sucker Punch's McMillan said opting out from the fundraisers was another unwanted headache business people don't have time for, especially when they're trying to figure out how to keep their operations afloat. He said to opt out, he was required to provide a scan of an employer ID number to prove he owned his business, something he does not have since he has yet to hire anyone. He said he worried the fundraisers could invalidate businesses from making an insurance claim or garnering government financial support. This could have incredible, like a real detrimental impact to small businesses, a thing that a bunch of tech bros sitting in a room thought was a good idea and like, oh, well, we'll give people the comfort of not having to opt into or consent to this. And like, they should have. Despite its good intentions, the Yelp GoFundMe effort is just another example of the tech industry's move fast and break things mentality, said technologist Ashkan Sultani in a talk with X-Ray. Yeah, it's the hubris of what kind of tech industry won kind of assuming that they're the smartest people in the room. Sultani served as a senior advisor in the Obama White House and as chief technology officer of the Federal Trade Commission. And two, kind of taking the initiative, sometimes without care, or often without care or um, awareness of social bounds. 
both Soltani and McMillan suggested Yelp could have offered the fundraisers as an option to businesses through a one-click sign-up. That, said McMillan, actually would have been appreciated. Reporting for X-Ray FM in Portland, I'm Kate Kay. Thank you to Kate Kay for that report. Now we continue to our interview with former mayor and current candidate for city council, Sam Adams. Sam talks about why running for Chloe Udaly's seat is the time and place for his political comeback, what he's learned about himself, his thoughts on Portland's former government, I-5 expansion, and more. On Tuesday, May 19th, Oregonians will make their choice in this primary season. In Portland, four of the five city council races will be decided, including the mayor's seat. Four out of the five votes on city council up at the same time. Today, we're going to hear from candidate for city council, former mayor, Sam Adams, candidate for seat four. Sam grew up in Newport, Oregon, graduated from University of Oregon, familiar face at City Hall, having served as former mayor, Vera Cass's campaign manager, and then chief of staff, as well as city commissioner and then mayor. Moved away. Now he is back and he is in the studio. Welcome to X-Ray, Sam. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Who are you and why are you running? Well, I grew up in uh, Newport, Oregon, uh, and I remember delivering the newspapers for the Oregonian and the Oregon Journal, uh, and being a gay kid didn't feel exactly safe or welcome in my community or my family, but reading those papers and sort of learning about this big city what seemed to me pretty far away, uh, was a place that I really wanted to get to because it seemed like a place where I could be more of my true self. And that's really the love I have for this city. When I got to work here full time, I uh, took the campaign manager job for Vera Katz. Uh, you know, the, the city has, has been great to me and, and has given me so, so many opportunities. And so that's why I love this place. And that sort of love and devotion has increased based on, you know, in my past job as director of the U.S. program for World Resources Institute, which is one of the larger environmental think tanks fighting climate change around the world with nine country offices. I was in charge of the what is now the Banana Republic called the United States of America when it comes to climate change. But I had the opportunity to travel to cities all over the world. I uh, never thought I would and, and around the United States and and saw and of course was comparing Portland to to these other cities and, and what are they doing about homelessness and compared to what uh, Portland is doing about homelessness and a whole host of others, transportation, climate action, those kinds of things. So when I came back to Portland in May, um, you know, I'd been concerned uh, keeping track of things from D.C., coming back to take care of some sick family members, uh, though pretty quick trips. But when I came back from D.C. to Portland, um, you know, that concern from afar really turned into alarm seeing things up close. Did you regret not fighting it out, sticking and running again? I'm sure you had moments of second thoughts. You mean for... Uh, for a second term. Uh, you know, it. It. You know, I ended the term with a 54% approval rating, which, you know, was 
Which suggests you might have been able to win re-election. I mean, my, my take then was that, and I do, I know your time is limited, but I do want to get into this stuff here and really appreciate you taking this time. I've been wanting to talk even not on the air for a while. And, and by the way, welcome back. Like you're a person, like, I don't know who should be the next city councilor in this position. I don't know the best way for you to serve the city, but I deeply appreciate your commitment to the city. I think it's real. I think you actually care about what's going on in our town and you put a huge portion of your life to it. Sure. And, and I think people should, appre- I appreciate that personally. Well, I appreciate that. But when I came back and I, you know, you know, I saw for myself, felt for myself that, that things were significantly going in the wrong direction for Portland. And, you know, I think it's between 35 and 40, only 35, 40 percent of Portlanders think things are going in the right direction. When I left office, that was 60 percent of Portlanders after going through the great horrible recession thought 60 percent still thought the city was going in the right direction. So that combined with the sense that I feel from Port- a lot of Portlanders that the challenges are getting ahead of us and that the ties to City Hall, people's connection and relationship to City Hall is frayed and broke. There's a need and you, you can still play. There's a need and there's still stuff you can do. Yeah, I come back, you know, as a uh, with all of I've, I've learned from around the world as, you know, a, a fresh thinking, uh, experienced per, uh, person devoted to local city civic life. Yeah. I want to get personal. If, if you don't win this race, it's not going to be because people don't think you know the city, understand how it operates. If you don't win this race, it's not going to be because uh, people don't think you can get anything done or because you don't care about this city. And when I say person, I mean about me, not just you. So I didn't succeed you. I lost. And I didn't, I didn't lose because uh, people didn't think I was smart. I don't think I lost because people didn't think I cared about the city. I lost because there were people who wondered if I was a good person. And that was deeply painful, right? Hard to deal with because I lived much of my life to try to help other people in the hopes that I could someday become a good person. It was deeply, deeply painful. And I remember talking to a good friend of mine and I was telling him what was, you know, was going on. And I was telling him all the ways that I was getting hosed and all the ways that, well, it wasn't exactly like that. And, 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 he, and he said, Jeff, I'm, I'm less concerned about, I'm less interested in what, what mistakes you've done in your life or the, the various vagaries and details and vicissitudes of that. I'm more interested about who you've been since, who are who you are now, and what you're going to do next, and how you're going to develop yourself. And that was why it's still hard to address. Right? Still, sort of, what are the ways that you stepped away now? What are the what are the ways that you think you're a different human being? And maybe you're not, right? Maybe you're like, no, I was awesome then, and I'm awesome now. Or maybe I was flawed then, I'm flawed now. What are the ways that you have tried to work on yourself to be the kind of leader that you want to be that you think the city needs? Well, first off, anything that uh, any every candidate brings their humanity into these races. Um, I grew up in the sort of profession. I grew up in the spotlight, and I chose to, and that was uh, my choice. Um, you know, lying about a relationship with an adult um, was dumb, but it was thoroughly investigated, and no, you know, legal wrongdoing was found. Um, and I said I would work hard to make sure that, you know, it didn't affect my agenda, which I ran on a very aggressive agenda and delivered on most of it um, and ended the term with a 54% approval rating, which at that time was, was very high. So uh, it's better than the president. I mean, the president's in the 40s. Uh, so, it, you know, it, I think Portlanders are very fair minded about those things. Um, but, yeah, that was a stupid but not illegal thing to do. Um, and of course you grow from that, you know, for me, it was also mortifying, humbling, 
um, to have done that um, and learned, uh, you know, that, that, you know, I'm not, that I have to take care of myself. You know, in that particular case, I was coming off um, a partner of, you know, 11 years had broken up with me and, and it was a low point for me. I'd, I'd never been in the spotlight, although I'd grown up in the spotlight, I'd never been in that sort of bright of spotlight um, as a city commissioner and was, a, a you know, acclimating to that. So I learned through the process of going through uh, admitting a mistake. Uh, you become a humbler person. You rely on others more, less sure of yourself, uh, I think, in really useful ways. I'd always been sort of team-oriented, but boy, I really had to be team-oriented, and I found it incredibly gratifying. Um and uh, take care of myself as a person because you, you know, that's the, that's what you bring to every moment of every situation you're in is, is sort of how healthy you are. And, you know, are you taking yourself good care of yourself? And I've never been great at that, but uh, since I've been away and come back, I think I'm much better at that now. I also seen you know, just a deeper appreciation of the life I've had when I've seen around the world people that are just living in, you know, abjectly horrible conditions and everyone I, you know. It can make you more grateful. Absolutely. To, to recognize as, as painful as it might be to be mm-hmm. toppled from a from a high position, we realize how much better that we have it than yeah. so many people in the world. Absolutely. So I think it made me a much better person. I've certainly learned and and grown from it. Without repeating that, reasons I think that Chloe is vulnerable, some of the reasons I think that some powerful interests want to beat her is because she is skeptical about I-5 expansion. And that might indicate she's skeptical about the zombie version of the Columbia River Crossing, and which will dedicate us to being highway builders, to putting most of our regional and state uh, transportation dollars into highway expansions. Uh, and I know you had to be in the thicket of that, right, and had conflicting feelings about it. Ended up voting in favors and stuff, trying to take away some lanes. Like you were trying to navigate your way through that process. Where are you now? Where do you think either the what or the how on what we do about I-5 and Northwood? Uh, I think we do congestion pricing on the both the Columbia and 205 crossings. We do it right away. We see uh, how much of the 60 to 80,000 commuter traffic from Clark County uh, joins some carpools, gets on buses, um, just makes fewer trips into the city, um, unrelated to getting to work and for shopping. You know, instead of three trips for shopping in a weekend, if they get to one, which is what a lot of tolls and congestion pricing, the kind of behavior that results from that, it's a win-win. But I want to see before we, uh, you know, widen, and I oppose the widening of I-5 until we do these things. I oppose it um, because it's just morphed into this like gigantic, you know, awful monstrosity of a project in terms of three quarters of a billion dollars. And there are other examples around the country where they built a new bridge, told it, and uh, the the amount of congestion went down so far. It, they didn't need to do it. it. It questioned whether they needed to do it. So I think the smart thing to do, which is the Trump administration will 
allow tolls, they say. Uh, the chair of the House Transportation Committee doesn't like tolls. I used to work for him, Peter DeFazio. So I'd like to change his mind and congestion price tolls across these bridges, see what happens. And uh, we'll be collecting money that we can put into um, low, you know, if you got an Oregon Trail card, you automatically pay a lower toll. If you get, if you're on the city's low-income uh, water and sewer rates because you qualified, you automatically get a lower toll. I think we can deal with the the, the uh, equity and fairness around this for low-income families. Um, but there are plenty of people that move to Washington County for the financial benefits and then drive back into our city and gum up our city during peak times when we need access to those freeways. And we're a region, so I support acting like a region. But in this particular case, we need to get fewer people driving alone during peak times across the rivers. And I will tell you, speaking as a hypocrite myself, I know that if there were, if I had to pay some fee, I know there would be times, just not criticizing anybody else, just criticizing myself. I know there are times I'd say, okay, this time I could maybe like get a, one of those bikey town bikes. Maybe this is the time I get a lime scooter. You know, maybe this time I'll walk or not do the trip. I, I just know that I would do that sometimes. And if I'm going to, that's true for me, I can't be the only and one. If you, it, and, and if you look at the travel pattern where you've got a percentage of, not an insignificant percentage of cars, uh, trips, commuter trips starting in the north of Clark County and have to go all the way through down to Washington County. Um, that's where the sort of workplace carpool uh, programs that are, you know, they have them on the East Coast more robustly than we have them here. Um, that's the win-win. They don't have to drive. There are fewer cars on the road. Uh, the more that we can have those commuter vans electric, you get the benefits. One other policy question, at least I got to ask you, and I don't want to ask it in the exact same way that I think you probably asked, had to answer it a bunch of times. It's about neighborhood associations and about uh, and about district-based elections and either having a strong mayor or an unelected king, you know, city manager. The uh, and rather than just asking you the binary question of where you land, mm-hmm. it seems to me there's some important competing interests. The interests that are pushing hard for not only dumping or, you know, sort of softening the power of neighborhood associations have overlap with the folks who are wanting to uh, move away from uh, a citywide empowered city councilors, city commissioners who actually get to run bureaus. Their argument essentially is, yeah, we need a system that's racist and we need a less balkanized city council. We need to break down the silos. And so that's why we need a city manager to run the whole thing so you don't have somebody just trumpeting for, I want water, and somebody else saying, no, I want roads or I want max lines. So there's a concern of the siloization and sort of the the racist risk. If you have a, a, a white city with uh, significant racist traditions, then how do you pull away from that if the whole of the city runs, you know, uh, controls every seat? On the other hand is democracy is how do you make sure that there is still a higher degree of accountability so that if, I mean, I know that if there is not an elected official that runs stuff, will there be that, and I was one of them, I was one of the people thumping the city about like people dying in 82nd Avenue and, and east of there, not because I ever thought that's what I was going to be doing, but because that's where I ended up living and where I ended up serving and I was, people were yelling at me about it as I and, paid it forward. And you were right. And, the, and so, and I knew that when I talked to a city councilor, that that person actually could do something about some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, that it wasn't one person who could do something about everything, but I could meet a city council who could do, who had real power, who could do it. And then we're accountable. And it also meant East Portland as an example. It meant that five city councilors had to care about it. 
-hmm. or at least had a reason to care about it. They should be there. They had voters there. There were Mm -hmm. constituents that area could go visit all five of them and say, no, go down the hall. That's not our ward. Go to the ward that's yours. How do, if you are leaning towards saying, yeah, let's, let's abide by the city club recommendations and move towards district-based elections and, you know, an unelected city manager. Uh, what do we do about the silos and what do we do to make sure we're not just uh, continuing racist oppression in governance? And if you are on the side of keeping the same uh, system, or excuse me, excuse me, and if you're on the other side, then how do you imagine us preserving democracy? You know what I'm saying? Because I don't think it's enough of an answer, basically, to just have a binary result on this. We've got to, to me, have all those things. We've got to address racism in our city and in representation. We've got to make sure that we run well, and we've got to make sure there's real accountability in decisions that are made by the city. How do we do it? Well, a couple of thoughts. One, uh, when I was on the city council, both as a commissioner and then as mayor, I asked the city government, I'm sorry, I asked the city attorney, I'm like, this has to be a violation of the Voting Rights Act or federal laws that uh, beyond the Voting Rights Act that require, you know, uh, uh, equal vote, equal representation, the at-large districts. I thought yeah. that's what they used to do in the South, you know, to keep people of color from from voting. And because we had such a small, uh, at that time, such a small percentage of non-white residents, the city attorney said, no, you can't drag yourself into court, which is, you know, my idea to sort of break through the logjam of what do we do? Um so uh, I absolutely support districts. Um, one, I think it's an important discussion. I think um, a more representative government is important. I think more representative uh, advice that we get for the city, and I'll give you a concrete example of what I would do. Um, and uh, neighborhood associations you know, have to continue to evolve. Um, but the incumbent in this race, it absolutely blew up. And now the whole decision-making process is three years out, and Portland can't wait three years for um, more inclusive representation. So my idea, other cities do it around the world, is we create commissions, um, one for black African-Americans, one for uh, Latino Hispanics, one for uh, Native Americans, one for um, Asian-Americans, and within that those commissions or committees, you get to bring around the table the diversity within those communities because Asians, Americans... Not all one thing. Yeah, not all one thing. And probably one for women. Um, they should have standing as a neighborhood association when it comes to land use, that that they can decide to take a project or a zoning change and opine on it anywhere in the city, just like neighborhood associations can still do. Um, while we're waiting these three years. But also, they have the opportunity then to, though, bring us in if I'm elected to the city council. And what am I doing with my bureaus in terms of, you know, equal employment and EEO representative employees? And and are they making their way up uh, the ladder of, of, of management to management? And what are we doing on minority contracting? Um, I think that the city council could put this together in a matter of, you could start taking applications in a matter of weeks. And if after three years, you know, a better holistic change is out there, great. But in the meantime, you know, having input on, let's say, the budget, 
you know, what are we up to? Almost $6 billion, you know, and the amount of non-white input into that process, which is not just where the money spends, as you know, it's the blueprint of what actually the city's going to do over the next year, not what we might say it will do, but largely what the city will do. And where's the money going? Um, you know, I started geo equity on budgeting and that actually they've turned it into even more useful things since then. But like these commissions can get going right now. And I think it's incredibly important. The other thing though, is we need to bring the community along. We need to bring the community along, the private sector, and recognizing the benefits of having more diverse boards and directors. And so I would, you know, in three years announce that we will raise the business license fee. Um, but you won't have to pay it as a, as a, for, for businesses above a certain size. Start with that. So just sort of figure it out with the bigger businesses. Um, and, and for businesses over a certain size, you know, you won't pay the, the higher fee if you have a rep- representational board. And let's say it includes a worker and it's got to have adequate female representation and people of color on that board work out the details later, but you yeah, get, but you the get a little idea. bit of a break if you diversify your leadership team. Right. And if you're not, and it's disclosed whether you're meeting that requirement or not, give them two or three years. You know, the standard board of directors seat is, you know, one to three years and they report and they reported whether they're meeting or not, whether they're paying the penalty or not. The money we, we get from the penalty money, we can then put into, you know, more equity programs in the city. We can't order corporations to do that, but we can use our business license tax. I would ask the county and their business license fee to do the same because we, we city government as a, as a municipal entity need to change. But we need to be thinking externally of how we incent um, more inclusion for, for historically disenfranchised folks, how we have more of that in every aspect of the city. So it's it's built on part of what California is doing, that they have the power to require it, but we as a city have the power to incent it. When people have asked you, why didn't you run for mayor? Why didn't you run against Ted Wheeler? What's the best answer you've given? I just didn't want to, I'm at a place in my life where I wanted to focus. I wanted to focus on this issue of houselessness and affordable housing. That's it, a good answer. It's a, What's it, the worst answer you've given? <laughs> Uh, that is that is the best and the worst answer I've given. How's that? What didn't I ask you that I shouldn't? Uh, how's Peter doing? He's doing great. <laughs> He's the campaign manager um, uh, for a, a ballot measure that's trying to get on the ballot that would bring a lot more uh, funding to uh, low-cost uh, substance abuse recovery. What are you most excited about? about the Because I, I know so many, I mean, there's so much stuff to get through because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm what are you ex- most excited about? I'm excited to get working again on these problems. I love it. Um, and I, and, and I, w- one of the things I love it is my approach, which is I think different than the incumbent's approach is I like to bring all the people around the table that think they hate each other and have no common cause. Like on how do we get 44,000 units of housing built in the next, you know, by 28. Uh, I've had a lot of good fortune in bringing those kinds of competing groups together up front to get stuff done. And, you know, that's, these, these issues are so fraught and they're so difficult. You need all of those diverse views and a lot of expertise at the table. And then just the average person's radical common sense. And that's really, you know, what I try to bring is radical common sense because this is local government. 
we are nonpartisan for a reason. You know, we work on the problems, solutions on the problems. We work on achieving uh, the opportunities without, um, without the partisan labels. Sam Adams, former mayor, candidate for city council. Thank you for taking this time. Thank you for having this conversation. Thanks to, your, thanks to you for your commitment to the city. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is your daily local news podcast, your hometown in 30 minutes. We'd love your feedback and story ideas. Send us email at thelocal at xray.fm or tweet us at xrayfm. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from Portland and beyond.